Father in heaven, thank you that it's been our joy to gather ourselves, lift our voices, and give worship to you, our God. We come to you, God the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and pray that we will know your presence in this room today. We pray that your word will come to us in the power of the Holy Spirit, that it will accomplish every purpose, every end for which you send it. We pray that by your word you would save some in this room today and people watching with us online. We pray that they would believe in you, Lord Jesus, and be saved. We pray that you'll greatly rejoice the hearts of your people, that you'll cause them to overflow when we see how rich in mercy you have been toward us, how great your love is toward us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, how amazingly you made us alive together with Christ and saved us by grace. Rejoice our hearts with these truths today, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Just realized I need the verse numbers to do a responsive reading. I don't have them on my paper. I have them on my phone, so pardon me for using the phone. Let's read responsively. So I'm going to read the odd numbers. I'm odd. How's that? And you're even, okay? You ready to be even? Here we go. I'm odd. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we're looking at Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. You've been a very patient congregation. You've been waiting to get to the but God part. And today we're actually getting there. But God, let me read it again. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Here's what he did. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So let me remind you of the structure of what we're looking at here. In the first three verses of Ephesians, chapter 2, it's all about what we were. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked in those. We followed the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. We all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, and so on as we read. Then, but God. So it's what you were. You were all of that, but God. And then it tells us some things about God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And even when we were dead, 
He raised us up together with Christ. He gave us new life in Christ. So this is about how bad we were, how bad we are, and yet how much God loves us and has mercy upon us. And even when we were at our worst, dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive in Christ. So our passage, the verses we're looking at there, start off with, but God. There are quite a number of but God clauses in the Bible, Old Testament and New. This has got to be one of the best. This has got to be one of the best known. You were, but God. But just to make an impression upon us with some of the other but gods from the Bible, I want to read through a little list of them, and I'll put a few of them, the latter ones, up there for you. But I'll start off with Genesis 8.1. There was a flood, and we read, But God remembered Noah, and he sent a wind, and the waters receded. Genesis 50, in verse 20, Joseph has been sold as a slave to Egypt, where, by God's providence, he became prime minister of the land. His brothers show up wanting some food, and he, uh, he speaks to them and says, look, guys, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it to me for good. Or 1 Samuel 23, 14, Saul is chasing David to try to kill him out in the wilderness. And we read day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. But God, but God, but God. Or Psalm 73, 26, David's having hard times, and he says, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, but God. Or Matthew 19, 26, Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible, but God, but God, but with God. Or 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who with the temptation will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will make a way that you may escape. But God is faithful. Here's another one, Romans chapter 5. I'll put this one up. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So it's, these are just a few, but God, but God, but God, but God, all over the Bible. And so we have it here in our text in Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy and so on, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. But God. So let's just pause for a moment and thank God for the but gods of the Bible. And not only the but gods of the Bible, but the but gods in our lives. Every one of us has a story, a salvation story, if we've come to the Lord Jesus and we can say, there's what I was, there's how I was living, but God. Think of all the but gods in this room. And it's not only our salvation stories, but it's also our sanctification story. The difficulties of living in this world and faithfully following Christ. I messed up in this way, but God. I failed to do that, but God. 
So we, we all have many, many, many but God stories. One, I was lost, but God found me. And then the other, I was a mess again and again and again and again, but God. Thank God for the but gods in the Bible and thank God for the but gods in our stories. But moving on, looking at the verses, he says, but God, and then he's going to get to, he's going to finish what he's saying, and that is made us alive together with Christ. But he interjects some things in between, and they're very important. Here's the purpose that they serve. They tell us why it is so, uh, why it is so amazing that he raised us with Christ. That's because we were dead in trespasses and sins. And they also tell us what moved God to raise us together with Christ, and that is being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So if you're in Christ, how come you're in Christ? Especially knowing that when he saw you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What moved him to save your sorry soul? And the answer of the text is, it's because he's rich in mercy. And it's because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. So that's where we're going today. That's what I want to impress upon us. So let's look at the phrase, but God, being rich in mercy. Let's look at that, being rich in mercy. Now here we're doing some theology proper. Here we're doing some of the doctrine of God, and you want to do a lot of the doctrine of God. You want to know about God. You want to know what the Bible teaches you about that great being who made the heavens, the earth, you, and all things. And here we're told some very important things about that great being, some very important things about that God. Thing number one, he is rich in mercy. And that, my friends, is very, very good news. Because we are rich in what? Sin. We're a bunch of sinners, a bunch of unworthy, hell-deserving sinners. But it's amazing. God has just what unworthy sinners need, and he's rich in it. He is rich in mercy. What does it mean? What's the word rich mean? When somebody's rich, they have lots of something. It might be money, and they're rich. Or it might be knowledge. They're rich in knowledge. Or it might be, and I like this one most, it might be grandchildren, like we got 12 of them. Let me tell you, endure your kids to get two grandchildren. <laughs> Biblical counsel, it's how it works. Just put up with the little monsters because they're gonna bring you some grandchildren and that's pay dirt. Debbie and I are blessed to have 12 of them so far. We're told there might be more, we'll see. And they are riches. It's not fair that one of the families in the church, Bill and Denise Troutman, they have 21 grandchildren. They're the richest couple in Cornerstone Church. Those are riches. So generally, riches means you have a lot of something that's desirable. You have a lot of something that's really good. And here we're told God has riches. There are actually many riches of God's in the Bible. I'll read you a short list. These are the eight I found in the New Testament. We're told God is rich in goodness, rich in forbearance, rich in in long-suffering, rich in glory, rich in wisdom, rich in knowledge, rich in grace, and then our term here from Ephesians, and he is rich in mercy. So God is rich, 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 and a whole lot of things. He has a lot of those things. 
But the one we're thinking about today is his mercy. He's rich in mercy. That's good news, my friends. It's good news. What is mercy? Here's a short but technical definition. Mercy is compassion or pity for sinners. It's compassion or pity for sinners. God is rich in compassion. God is rich in mercy. He is rich in pity for sinners. Here's my little garden variety definition. God's mercy, being rich in mercy, means he does not give us what we deserve. That's mercy, and God's rich in that. So imagine you got legal problems. Let's say you were one of the guys, and I assume it was guys. It's always guys. 90% of all criminals are guys. 90% of all people in jail are guys. 90% of all murders are committed by guys. I'm guessing those numbers, but I bet it's close. So let's say you're a guy and you're in trouble with the law. Let's say you're one of those who uh, backed your truck through the front doors of Walgreens on 924 recently, trying to get the ATM machine. They failed. They didn't get it. They went home empty-handed. But suppose, suppose they, they got you on the cameras. They figured out who you are. You went to court. Court found you guilty, 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 guilty. And now it's time for sentencing, and you're standing before the judge. And what do you say to the judge? Do you say, I want justice? No. You don't want justice. You want mercy. Mercy is what the guilty need. Mercy is what sinners called for. And you might even trot out your extenuating circumstances. Oh, judge, my kids are hungry. I can't afford to feed them. I had to try and steal the ATM. You're hoping for a lesser sentence, but you're hoping the judge will have some mercy. Guess what? The judge of the universe. There is one. The judge of all mankind is just what you and I need. He is rich in mercy. God has deep pockets of mercy. God is a trillion, 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 trillionaire in mercy. He is unfathomably merciful. He is beyond what we can imagine in mercy. That's a fact so good. I want to presume upon your patience, presume I'll have your patience and chase it around Scripture a little bit more, the mercy of God. There's so much about God's mercy and the extent of it in the Bible. So here's a few examples to kind of buttress what we're seeing in Ephesians. First, we'll go to King David in Psalm 51. What has King David done? Bathsheba, adultery, Uriah, murder by having him put in the heat of battle. David held it down for a while. His bones groaned within him, and he finally came to his senses and went back to God. And in the crucible of the workings of God's Spirit in his soul, he wrote for us Psalm 51. And what does he say in Psalm 51? Have mercy upon me, O God. And those are words that need to be mouthed by every believing child of Christ often. Right? Have mercy upon me, O God. Those are words to be mouthed by you if you're, not let a if you're not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus. What you need is the mercy of God because you've been a sinner. You've grieved your own conscience. You've grieved the Holy Spirit. 
You've broken God's laws times without number. And what you need is to go to him through Jesus Christ and plead with, with him in David's words, have mercy upon me, O God. Well, to what standard, to what extent? How much mercy can this God have? According to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. The God of the universe, the God with whom you have to do, the God before whom you will stand at the last day, has a multitude of mercies for sinners who will repent and turn to him. You, I say it reverently, you cannot out the mercy of God. So people from time to time say it. I've heard people say it. I, from time to time you hear it. They'll say, well, I'd turn to God now, but I don't, I don't think he'd accept me. I've been too bad. I've done too many things. I don't think there'd be mercy for me. Oh, you don't understand. You're just exactly what he specializes in. You're what he's looking for. He'll make a trophy of his mercy and his grace out of you, an eternal trophy to his honor and glory. You can't out the mercy of God. This is why David says again in Psalm 103, verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. Moses is up on Mount Sinai the second time. First time he broke the two tablets when he came down. Now he's back up, two new tablets. He wants God to proclaim the name of the Lord to him. And here's what we read, Exodus, Exodus 34, 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And in the context, what an appropriate, what a great time to utter such things about himself because he's just about to give the Ten Commandments again. And he wants us to know as we receive the Ten Commandments, which show us our sin, which show us our guilt, which show us our need for Christ, God says, I'm about to show you my commandments, but here's something I want you to know about who I am. I am merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abounding in these. I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God of this universe. I'm reminded of a parable our Savior told. It's in Luke chapter 18 in the New Testament. It starts at verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves. See, they were the people who were in God's court and were saying, justice, justice, I deserve justice. They trusted in themselves. And Jesus says to them that they trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they despised others. So here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Good guy, bad guy. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. He starts pointing at them, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. He was very quite full of himself. I've been amazing, God. What a fine specimen of humanity you have in me. 
verse 13, and the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Have you ever said that? Have you ever said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? That's where you get salvation. That's where you get everlasting life. That's where you get a new heart that loves the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And Jesus concludes, verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Yeah, there's mercy for the tax collector who will confess he is a sinner. There's a great hymn, one of the greatest of all time, so it would have to be by one of two guys. Take your pick. Who's it by? Name them. Who's the one? Isaac Watts. He already showed up in the service. It's not him. Who's the other one? Wesley. Wesley. Yes, it's Wesley. It's Charles Wesley. And here's part of this great hymn. The words go. I'll put them up. Depth of mercy can there be? Mercy still reserved for me? Can my God his wrath forbear? Me, the chief of sinners spare? And of course the answer is yes. There is such mercy. And yes, God can spare you though you're a chief of sinners. So Paul says, we were, we were, we were, we were, we were, but God. Well, why did God? Because he is rich in mercy. He wants us to know that. By the way, before we leave that, I can't resist fitting this in, though it's going to come up in a few weeks in verse 7 anyway. Putting God's mercy and grace and love on display are a very large part. That is a very large part of what this whole thing is about. So God's mercy is not just some little thing like 14 branches out away from the trunk of the tree. No, it's the trunk of the tree. Like, what is going on here? Why all of this? Why did he create? Why did he allow a fall? Why did he send a redeemer? Why is there a last day, judgment, heaven, and hell? What's the whole story? What's it all about? Listen to Ephesians 2, 7. He did all this so that in the coming ages he might show. Why all of this? God wants to show something. What's he showing? The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's why it's all here. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all for. Without fallen sinners, God can't show mercy. He can't show his mercy. He can't show his grace. He can't pardon anybody. He can't show the extent of his love. But with fallen sinners, God can show. Why did he do all this? That in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches, like for eternity, all eternity future, you're in Christ. We're going to be stumbling around heaven going, I can't believe his riches. I can't believe his grace. I had no idea. He's going to show it and put it on display forever and ever and ever. Paul says this in a very important passage, Romans 9. Jump over there with me. I'll put it up. What if God, and Paul's not just wondering aloud. It's a rhetorical statement. 
he's telling us this is what God is doing. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He has done that. He is doing that. Why? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. What is God doing? What's he up to? Why all of this? What's the big story? What's it all about? It's all there in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Showing mercy is one of the basic building blocks of the whole meta-narrative. Showing mercy is what this is all for. Showing mercy is a very central part of what's happening. And God is rich in mercy. By the way, there's a great thing for you to explain to your non-Christian friends. It would be very important that they understand God is rich in mercy. Yes, he has a holy law. Yes, he'll be a just judge. Yes, he terrified everybody on Mount Sinai, but guess what? He's a merciful God. If you'll turn to him, he'll forgive even you, and he'll receive even you, and you can't out-sin the grace and the mercy of God. All right, let's move on on Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Put it up again. But God being rich in mercy, and now he tells us where the mercy comes from. God is rich in mercy. That's why he raised us up even when we were dead. Where'd the mercy come from? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. That's why God's merciful, because of his great love. His mercy grows out of his love. His mercy is a product of his love. It's like, I love you, so I'll be merciful toward you. Like if you're the judge for the ATM guy and he turns out to be your son, you might say to him, "Uh, son, I love you. So I'm going to go easy on you this time. It's because of your love. And the text tells us this is why God is merciful to fallen sinners like us, because of his love. The Bible says God so loved the world. The Bible says Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. The Bible says, behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. The Bible tells us, this is cool, 1 John 4, 7, love is from God. Where did love even come from, God? It does not come from the devil. It does not come from fallen humans. It comes from God. And and the granddaddy of them all, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. He is love. That's not all he is, but he is love. And God's redemptive mercy grows out of his great love. Why will he be merciful to a sinner like me? Because he loves a sinner like me. And then to make this even better, Paul goes on and gives us a special circumstance. Next slide, please. It is this, even when we were dead in our trespasses. It's a restatement of verse 1, and you being dead in trespasses and sins. So why did God do all this? Because he's merciful and wants to show it. His mercy grows out of his love and he wants to show his love. And he even did this when we were dead in our trespasses. What's the point? The point is nothing in us 
caused his love. Nothing in us elicited his love. He didn't look at the race from heaven and say, aww. It's not like, when's the last time you saw a Labrador Retriever puppy? Aww. Aren't they adorable? Look at that. No, he didn't do that. What did he see when he saw us? Well, the text tells us, dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins. So it's not that we were eminently lovable. It's not that we were adorable. It wasn't like the first time I saw Debbie. Oh, I remember it vividly. I remember how she had her hair done. I remember the glasses she was wearing then. I remember what outfit she had on. I remember what she was doing. I remember what room we were in. She was part of a little music group, and they were performing, and I was there going. And in about a week, I met her, and in 10 months, we were married. But anyway, like when I first saw her, I was like, yeah. That's not what God did when he looked down and saw us. That's not why he loved us. That's not why he has mercy on us. Uh, To the contrary, lest you get any exalted notions of yourself, listen to what God saw. It's in Romans 3.10 and following. Here it is. None is righteous. This is what he saw. He's looking down, telling us what he sees. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. In their fallenness, they don't. No, not one. No one seeks for God. None of them. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now it gets worse. Their throat is an open grave, like you need to gargle with God's word. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, and it says all those things, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So that part of the word of God basically says to y'all, hush your mouth. Don't stand before God and say, aren't I a wonderful specimen of humanity? I fast, I give tithes, I do all these. I bet you're really impressed with me. No, 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 hush your mouth. When God looked down and saw the race, that's what he saw, Romans 3. And that's when he loved us and gave Christ to die for us and showed his mercy toward us. So in other words, God's love is a covenant love. It's a love of determination. He determines, I will love them. It's not that they're lovely and I can't help it. It's not that love is a feeling that you feel that you're going to feel a feeling that you never felt before, Hollywood love. It's not that at all. It's that God looked at them and said, well, they're absolutely dead in their trespasses and sins, but I love them. The Bible says I've loved you with an everlasting love if you're in Christ. And Romans 8 says nothing shall ever separate us from that love if you're in Christ. So God's great love and mercy are not rooted in anything he finds in us. Romans 3 is what he finds in us. They're rooted in his purpose. They're rooted in his sovereign will. They're rooted in his intent. Though don't make the love cold and steely, it is still love. It's real love. All right, so let's review. Let's go back to the text. Here it is. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead. Just want to remind you, what do dead people do? They stink. So we were not seeking him. We were not moving toward him. We were a stench in the divine nostrils, if anything. But even when we were dead in our trespasses, now we come to this. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what's he saying? He took you from there and put you there. You were dead, he made you alive. He raised you up. He seated you with Christ in heavenly places. Let's look at the first thing he did, the made alive verb. He made us alive together with Christ. By the way, uh, regeneration, made alive, is used a lot in the Old and New Testament, especially the New. But this is, this is a unique word. It's used here and it's used in Colossians, made alive together with. It's a unique compound word that only appears here and in Colossians. It's not found anywhere in ancient Greek literature. It's not found in like the classic Greek writers. It's not found in any grocery list that we've uncovered. It's only found in Paul. Paul coined this term, made us alive together. I'm pointing that out to you for a couple reasons. One, he probably said, how do I express this? I just don't even know how, there aren't words. I'll make one up. So it's okay if I make up a word inadvertently now and then, all right? It's okay. It's apostolic. Make up words. So we're looking at he made us alive together with Christ. Now, I already said the word. I didn't mean to. I let the cat out of the bag. What doctrine are we talking about here? God made us alive. That's the doctrine of regeneration. Sorry, that was more vague than I realized. That's the doctrine, the biblical doctrine of regeneration. So we've left the doctrine of God, theology proper, his mercy, his love, his grace, what he's up to, what the big picture is. We've left that sort of, and we've come over now to what is called soteriology, or the doctrine of salvation, or how God saves people. And part of salvation, part of soteriology, is the doctrine of regeneration. Now, my friends, the doctrine of regeneration is crucial. It's so very, very important. Here's what you need to understand. When you turn that God may be God to you and you call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, he does something for you. What's that? Well, he washes away the record of your sins and he imputes the righteousness of Christ onto your record and thus he makes you right with God. He does something for you. But in every case where he does something for someone, he also does something in that someone and here's what he does in them. He regenerates them. He gives them new life. He makes them a new creature in Christ Jesus. So this is a crucial doctrine. We're going to we're going to look at a number of verses on it. We're going to like dive and dive and dive and dive. I'm reminded of so years ago, 85 to 95, we lived in Riverside, California, smog city. Don't go there. Probably lost 10 years off of my life from breathing smog those 10 years. 
But for summer, for vacations, some friends let us use their cabin up in Lake Tahoe. Fresh air, clean, beautiful. We'd go up to Tahoe every summer and vacation. So um, we would swim in the lake. The lake is 52 degrees and crystal clear. But we would snorkel around. Like after five minutes, you're numb and it was okay. We'd snorkel around the lake and then you'd see something, down you go, come back out, blow out your snorkel, snorkel around some more. There's a cool rock, good, like 25 feet down to my ears were, I didn't know how to deal with it. We were doing that. So we were diving and diving and dying. I made that way too long. We're going to dive and dive and dive and look at some regeneration. All right? I want you to understand, this is not just a little thing that came up once with Jesus in John 3, uh, Nicodemus, unless you be born again, you can't see the kingdom. No, it's a big, big theme. Let's start with Titus 3.5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. When God saves you, the Holy Spirit performs a ministry in you. It's the third person of the Trinity who does the regenerating, and he regenerates you with a washing of regeneration, a renewing of the Holy Spirit. Look at John 1, 12 and 13 with me. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of blood, not talking about that birth, nor of the will of the flesh, not talking about that birth, nor of the will of man, not talking about that birth, the one from your dad, your mom, and you came out, not that one, but who were born of God, talking about that birth. That's a different birth. You have been born again. Listen to 1 John 5, 1 and 4. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So people who don't believe that Jesus is the Christ have not been born of God. Let's go on. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Let's go to the classic John chapter 3. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, Jesus answered him, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It means you won't go to heaven unless you're born again. Pastor Steve, I'm visiting Cornerstone today, and my big question is, how can I go to heaven? You have to be born again. How can I be born again? Repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. And when you're saved you're born again. Jesus goes on, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. That's a reference to Ezekiel chapter 36, where God said, in the new covenant, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to wash you clean. I'm going to put my Spirit in you. That's the water. That's the Spirit. Unless you're born of what Ezekiel talked about, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Here's what you need to know. That which is born of the flesh is just flesh. It's not spiritual. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. It's like this. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can't see the second birth, but you can see its effects. Just like wind. Its effects are out of a new heart. You have new loves, new desires, new passions, new likes, new hates. Peter chimes in. 
Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. All right, let's return to Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Last slide, please. Oh, slide, ma'am. But God made us alive together with Christ. So what have we seen? What we were, but God. Why did God, in spite of what we were, because he's rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved you, even while you were at your worst, dead in your trespasses and sins, for by grace you are saved. All right, I have two questions in closing. Here's a question for all of us. It's really for some of you in particular. Are you dead or alive? Has God made you alive in Christ so that you find you're very much alive to God, the things of God, the Word of God, the kingdom of God, the people of God, the church of God? You're very alive to the things that are in Christ. Notice, please, I did not ask you whether you're a very religious person. I did not ask if you're good and moral and upstanding. I didn't ask if you're nice to your neighbors and their kids and their dogs. I didn't ask if you've gone to a confirmation class. I didn't ask, have you become a member at Cornerstone Community Church? I didn't ask, did you go to Pastor Stan's membership class that he just held? I didn't ask, are you going to my first take that I have next week after church? I didn't ask any of those things. What I asked is, have you been born again by a work of the Holy Spirit regenerating your heart? And if you answer yes, here's my second question in closing. First question, are you dead or alive? Have you been regenerated? Second question, if you say, yes, I have been, here's my question, do you look like it? Do you look like it? Like imagine if you were dead and you were lying right there and God made you alive again, would I be able to tell any difference? How would I tell the difference? Well, being alive, you would do things. You'd probably start breathing again. You'd get up off the floor. You'd say, well, what was that all about? And you know, I'd be able to tell you're alive. There are signs of life. So it is in the kingdom of God. When you are born of the Spirit of God and you become alive to God, you are, well, alive to God. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Everything's new in Christ. So are you dead or alive? Have you been born again? If you answer yes, do you look like it? You can get a t-shirt that says born again. Doesn't mean you're born again. You can get a tattoo that says born again. That doesn't mean you're born again. You're born again when the Spirit of God has given you new life. And that new life is always evident. It's a new life but God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this text to consider together today. We pray that Cornerstone Church may proclaim your mercies and your love, and that as a result, many would believe on you, Lord Jesus, and be made new creatures in Christ. We pray that people hearing this message, both in this room and with us online, that hearts would turn, that knees would bow, that tongues would confess, Jesus is my Lord. 
to the glory of God the Father. We ask for all in the name of Jesus. Amen.